Welcome back to QAV. This is episode 416, recorded Monday the 19th of April 2021. We kick off this episode with uh, about a half hour long interview with a special guest, Chris Stott. Chris is the Chief Investment Officer at 1851 Capital. They just finished their uh, first year, had a great year, terrific performance. And formerly, Chris was the Chief Investment Officer with Wilson Asset Management for many, many years. I think he was, well, he was at the company for 12 years. Um, So uh, let's get stuck into that. And then Tony and I will continue afterwards with uh, some news of the week and uh, some Q&A. Here we go with Chris Stott. Hello, gentlemen. How are you, Cameron? Thank you, Chris. How are you, sir? Yeah, well, thanks. Good. Well, um, I know you're on a tight time frame. Chris has to get out in half an hour, Tony, by 4.30, so we've got to get into it. No problems. Well, thanks for coming on, Chris. No, pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. It's great. Yeah, well, I've, I've known you for a long time, although you probably haven't known me, but uh, I've been a long-term shareholder in Wham Capital. Ah, uh, good, okay. Yeah, yeah right great. back to the early days when uh, Jeff Wilson used to, to come to our meetings and there was about uh, 10 of us in the audience, I think. What so were you? What year did you invest at the start in 1999? Or yes, I think it was after the first results came out, the first half year results. Wow, there you go, fantastic! Are you still own them today, or have you sold out? I've I've bought in and sold out along the way, tending to trade yes. them when the discount gets uh, enough to the yes. um, NTA. So I but I still keep a very small amount just to keep the comms going, which is great. Uh, good one. Yeah, very yeah. good. Good to yeah. hear. 1851 Capital. You've been around about a year, I think. Is that right? Yes, 14 months now. So we launched it in February of last year, 2020. And you were previously with uh, Wilson Asset Management, hence Tony's comments about WHAM. Um, you, you launched it at an auspicious time, Chris. Uh, you, 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 you like to... You like to plan things uh, very carefully, I see. You launched uh, just, just in time for COVID. How did that feel? No, it felt great but when we launched it. And then obviously the world changed four weeks into uh, launching a business. So we feel like we've had the kitchen sink thrown at us in our first 14 months. But pleased to say we've uh, come through the other side. In fact, some people have commented to us and said, actually, the timing turned out to be quite fruitful given the performance you've had in your first year or so and the growth in the funds under management so uh it didn't feel good at the time don't worry about that it felt like going through the GSC all over again in the space of three or four weeks um but uh no pleased to say we're in good shape now it reminds me of when uh, Magellan was launched I'm pretty sure that was back at the depths of the GFC as well yes it was and um we we were told by a few people through that period that some of the best fund managers have launched you know just before various crises over the years and so we, we thought they were just being nice to us, but in fact, you're right, Magellan and others, in fact, have just done, have done that over over time. Mm. Why 1851? Is that a score or is that a year? <laughs> it's a year. So uh, the year 1851 in Australian history was a, a prominent year in Australian history. It was the start of a period of wealth and prosperity where the gold rushes kick off that year uh, with the Eureka Stockade only a few years after that. In fact, the, the decade after the year 1851 was a really strong economic, a period of economic growth, um, you know, for, the, for Australia. So, uh, you know, we wanted to have a number in the name, so that was as good as any. That was when the gold rush started, wasn't it? Around it then? was, in fact, yes, in Orange, New South Wales. So uh, uh, a very, very, uh, as I said, it commenced a very strong period of economic growth here in Australia for, for many, many years after that. 
So does that mean you're investing heavily in Bitcoin then, uh, Chris, to, to, to you know, uh, the new digital gold? No, no, no Bitcoin for us. We, um, we focus on investing in small cap growth companies primarily listed on the ASX here in Australia, and that's where we've spent a lot of our time over the last 10 or 15 years is looking for those growth companies in that small to micro cap uh, in the market, which has certainly been, we think, uh, a very uh, fruitful um part of the market to generate strong levels of alpha over a long time period and we think that remains the case today yeah interesting do you do you find the small caps uh, cyclical though do you find that sometimes they outperform large caps and sometimes they underperform large caps that, that, that's absolutely the case and but what we've found over the years is if we can we pride ourselves on finding those companies that are growing no matter what the economy is doing so an example would be corporate travel management um, which listed at a dollar a share in 2010. For the for the following 10 years for that business, the corporate travel sector in Australia was flat. Um, so corporate travel share price has gone from a dollar, you know, to north of twenty dollars. In fact, almost got to thirty dollars uh, the peak pre-COVID, and that's been on the backdrop of uh, flat corporate travel markets. So they've been able to grow their earnings by taking market share, obviously, but also growing via M&A, expanding to various parts of the world, Asia, Europe and the US. So they're the type of companies that we'd like to find, those early stage small caps that go on to be market darlings and in some cases, um, you know, like Afterpay go on to be an ASX top 20 company. So at Afterpay, we were the one of the largest investors at the IPO for Afterpay and sold them too early, like a lot of other people, I suspect, given the run it's had. But uh, you know, that's typically just gives you a bit of insight as to what we are trying to achieve and, and what we are looking for. Gee, that begs so many questions, Chris. So just the afterpay example, I guess, you know, this P is around 100 now or thereabouts. So are you saying you won't hold something when it gets up to that kind of lofty valuation? Yeah, look, we certainly um, we would have a price target or a valuation on every stock in the portfolio. And the beautiful thing for us is that we come in with a fresh, fresh set of eyes every day. Uh, and if a stock hits that price target or our valuation target, um, then we'll certainly be, not be hesitant to exit it uh, from the portfolio and move on to the next one. So we're very, very strict with that criteria. In fact, it's um, uh, one of the lessons that we've learned over the years is that we typically is we sell our positions too early. So we're typically early buyers and early sellers of companies. So we look for, as I said, those early stage businesses with no institutional shareholders on the register, um, no stockbroker coverage, you know, passes the Sunday barbecue test where you mentioned the name of the company and no one's ever heard of it. Um, that's, they're the companies that are right now sweet spot. Um, and when they typically go on to, to be much bigger and more wonderful businesses, whether it be an A2 Milk or Magellan or an Afterpay, some of those companies that we've ridden the way with over the years, um, is that we, uh, you know, we typically look to exit those companies uh, when they hit our, our price targets and become just what we call discovered storage, where you've seen a lot of funds man fund managers Come on the share register. You know there might be five or ten different research reports from stockbrokers around town. Um, so they're the typically some of the things that we um, that we look for and identify in some of those early stage small cap businesses. So I guess that sort of sells answers my next question, which is going to be how do you solve for liquidity? I guess your exits are helped by, by the fact that the company's grown so much that there's liquidity. Yeah, and look, it's a really good question. Liquidity is so important. Um, you know, being through the GFC and now the COVID crash of last year. Liquidity is critical in this end of the market, and that's small and micro cap 
into the market. It's you've really because things go wrong, and you've really got to have the ability to be flexible and be nimble. To be moving around in, in, into in your positions in the portfolio is critical. And we had a good uh, another reminder of that last year, uh, going through that March period, um, where you know some of it, some of the stocks on the small cap market fell by seventy or eighty percent in the space of three or four weeks, extraordinary falls in such a short period of time. So liquidity is really big for us and it really flows through to our stated fund capacity, which is $400 million. And, and limiting the size of the 1851 Emerging Companies Fund that we manage um, is really, really important to us. And we think by limiting the size of the fund um, gives us the best possible chance to generate significant levels of alpha or our performance uh, over time because our strong belief is that as you get bigger as a fund manager, as you take on more assets under management uh, in, in this end of the market, in that smaller micro cap end of the market, it just it becomes so a lot harder to outperform. And, and that, a lot of that comes down to your question around liquidity and your, your ability to be flexible and nimble and, and move around um, on a day-to-day basis. So does that does that mean you'll close it to investors at $400 million or will you open up a new fund if the fund grows to be $400 million? So there's no current intention to launch any new products. Um, in fact, funds under management today sits at 250 million. Um, when we get to 300 million, we're going to put the final call out to any prospective new investors who might want to invest in the fund before we soft close it off. To, so soft close means closed to any new investors. Um, and the reason for that is we don't want to break through that 400 million mark significantly. We've had almost 100 million of net inflows into the fund over the last six months. So we, we're in a strong position. Um, we've, we've seen significant momentum from an, from an inflow perspective, particularly in the last few months on the back of our strong one-year performance. Um, so once we reach that $300 million mark, we'll, we'll put out the call to our subscribers on our website um, to say that you know, the fund will soft close in a month's time and then we'll look to review it down the track as to whether we reopen it from time to time. But it's very important that we limit the size of the fund. I understand you had a good one-year performance. So if you have that performance again, now you have to close the fund down straight away, wouldn't you? That's right. So we're up 100% after all fees and expenses over the last 12 months. And I, I, I can quite confidently say that we won't achieve that return again in the next 12 months. Um, certainly a remarkable period, hasn't it been? Uh, and a great period for investors um, that have been in the market over the last 12 months. So some of the savvy ones that certainly um, you know, bought into the market or bought into our fund back in March of 2020 have certainly have certainly done well. Yeah, that's great. So what, what kind of uh, what kind of process do you have? What kind of investor would you call yourself other than a small cap investor? So we're an active bottom-up stock pickup. So we um, we hold a fairly diversified portfolio of around 60 to 70 positions at the moment, um, which sounds like a lot, but um, we're totally index unaware. So in terms of um, we do not typically track the index so much, even though we do have a high level of positions in the portfolio, and that's really given that a large part of our uh, positions in the portfolio don't sit in our in, in our benchmark, being the small laundries index. Um, you know, we focus on that X100 um, uh, part of the market in Australia, down to 50 mil market cap. When you strip out resources, which we don't invest in, we don't invest in biotech companies. Our investable universe sits around that 600 men, uh, sorry, 600 companies um, <laughs> that we look to potentially invest in and, and visit um, from time to time. You know, we, we visit over six or 700 companies a year in our process. Both Martin and I as the portfolio managers are very active in terms of uh, meeting with companies. In fact, we've become experts like a lot of us in Zoom and Microsoft Teams over the last 12 months um, in speaking to companies, you know, virtually. But we are starting to see that revert back to normal now where we can meet companies face-to-face, um, which is great. So 
in terms of our, our process, you know, we, we shrink that universe down to 600 companies. Um, you know, we meet with, as I said, six, six or 700 a year, um, and many we meet, you know, a few different times during, throughout the year, particularly the ones that we own in the portfolio. So we're looking for companies that are, are growth companies typically grown at, at, at around two times their P or P or price-to-earnings ratio. So it can be a company growing at 30% on a P or 15 and fit our criteria. Um, and so that's we typically find they are in that, those, those growth companies in that smaller, smaller micro-cap space. So we're essentially looking at the same part of the market that we've looked at for almost 15 years, um, going back to our, our history in the funds management industry. So would that be a trigger for a sell then if you had a company that was growing at twice PE but then started to slow down? Yeah, no, it would. And certainly, as I said earlier, um, every stock in the portfolio has got a strict valuation or a price target on it, um, which we uh, which we have in place. And uh, if any time or any day of the week we come into work and, uh, and that stock hits that price target, we'll look to sell it and move on to the next one. Um, but certainly it's it's been a very fruitful period um, for investors over the last 12 months. Um, we've been sport for choices as fund managers where we've been had too many things, too many things to invest in. We can't fit them all in the portfolio. And that's certainly a feeling that we haven't had since 2009, coming out of GFC where the market bottomed in March of 2009, that six to nine month period coming out of that was a similar feeling where we had too many ideas and couldn't fit them all in the portfolio. That's very, very unusual occurrence and something we don't see very often. In fact, it's normally the other way yeah. uh, where you can't find enough companies to um, that fit your strict criteria and your process to, to fit in the portfolio. So um, that partially also explains that the higher stock numbers at the moment being around that 65 to 70 mark versus that 30 to 80 range that we talk about our in our um, investment memorandum. Yeah, I, I must admit I agree with you about coming out of the GFC. It, I did have the same feel about it last year. Uh, do you find that you start to track the index more when you hold a bigger portfolio? No, we don't. In fact, it's quite the opposite given that a lot of our – we're totally index unaware. So if you look at the top 10 components – of the small laundries benchmark, which we use as our benchmark, being X100 investor, we don't own a single one of those top 10 um, stocks. So we quite a, we're very much index unaware. Um, a lot of the companies, you know, third of the portfolio would be what we call in the, invested in the micro cap sector, which are companies below 300 million a market cap as we define it. Um, so we don't tend to find that we um, have a very high correlation with the benchmark. In fact, it's, you know, it's quite the opposite. So we really pure bottom-up stock pickers looking for those growth companies um, you know, that are going to go on to be the next Magellan or A2 over time. So the fact that you're holding 60 or 70 companies in your portfolio, is that more a factor of liquidity, like you don't want to uh, take a large position in a very small company? Yes, it's a good point you raise, and that comes back to that discussion around liquidity earlier, which I failed to mention, is that um, we don't we like to run diversified portfolios, not putting all our eggs in one basket. Um, you know, things inevitably go wrong. We make mistakes as investors, as, as we all do, and um, we learn from those mistakes. And having a diversified portfolio, you know, protects, um, protects you to an extent. It is a good risk mitigation tool in terms of, you know, managing that risk profile of the portfolio over time. Um, so certainly for companies that are on that lower end of the spectrum in terms of market cap, whether it be between that maybe 50 to 100 mil market cap range, 
You might see us only have a half a percent position in the portfolio. Um, typically, our starting point is one percent position in the portfolio for a new stock that comes in. But um, for those more smaller illiquid positions, um, we we tend to have a smaller weight in the portfolio. And just to give you a sense of the underlying liquidity in the portfolio, within five business days, we could go to forty-five percent cash in our portfolio. So um, that assume, assumes twenty percent of the average daily traded volume, which is quite conservative. So. Um, I mean, it's really important to us is that we run a, even though we are investing in a relatively, we're deemed to be in a relatively liquid part of the market, being that small micro cap into the market, is that we focus a lot on companies that are high level of free float and high level of turnover, which gives us the flexibility to move around if the need arises. Yeah, good. Um, so meeting with two companies a day, basically, every day of the year, sounds like a little bit hard work. I know from my experience at company presentations and, and small group meetings with um, with CEOs, et cetera, that uh, they're, they're very good at selling you on the on the, the, the good story that they've got. So how, what do you look for when you're meeting with a company that, that might sort of get to the truth? That's a good question. And, you know, companies have uh, certainly perfected that art, haven't they, over the years in terms of you know, pitching and presenting their company in the best possible light. Some of the key things that we look for, firstly, is, is good skin in the game. So the actual equity ownership of the management team and the board itself. And you know, for corporate travel manager, which I talked about earlier, Jamie Ferros, the founder, floated the IPO of the company in 2010 and still had around a 30% stake in the company himself. Um, and he sold down that position to anywhere he sits around 15% today, but he sold that down over the last 10 years at much higher prices as, as he goes. So um, that is certainly a, a really important thing for us is that, um, you know, particularly the management have got good skin in the game and um, when they're buying and selling shares on market as well, that's obviously a really strong indicator, we believe, based on our research, uh, whether they're buying or selling um, is a really you know, good lead indicator for what that share price could potentially do um, over the following one to two years. So that's a really important factor. One key factor that's also come up for us in a lot of our successful investments over the last decade or 15 years, uh, some of our most successful ones have, have typically got the, a net cash balance sheet, so no debt. Um, and they've, they've done that through, through a number of different ways. Firstly, just generating that cash organically, so a high level of free cash flow, you know, sitting on the balance sheet, uh, which they've generated, accumulated over a few years or many, many years. Um, and also and what we found is that having net cash on the balance sheet gives those companies optionality over time, uh, whether it be to, to make acquisitions, to grow earnings that way, um, from a capital management perspective, share buybacks, high dividend uh, yields or higher payout ratios over time. So we've found that that's been a really um, a really strong indicator for us in terms of the successful investment we've had for well over the last 15 years. So that's a really important factor that we look at as well. Um, and, and clearly industry structure like everybody does, but, um, you know, we, we compare, say, a retailer with low barriers to entry, they're very, very hard to make money into a retail business, although the last 12 months has probably been the best year to be in retail for almost 30 or 40 years. Um, as well as you know, comparing that to, to businesses that have got really strong, uh, I don't like using the word moat, but a competitive advantage, um, which really differentiate themselves and high barriers to entry to, to stop any new entries coming in to compete. I guess things like uh, an, an owner-founder, uh, PE over growth or growth over PE and lots of cash is, is you, you're describing some of the elements on my checklist when I invest, but I don't need to go and talk to 200 or 300 people a year to to pull the trigger, what uh, what extra value do you get from the face-to-face -face meetings? Quite a lot. So we typically ask the same questions of the company every time we meet with them 
And um, it's fascinating, you know, years ago, ABC Learning Centres, which was listed on the ASX, very successful, um, you know, pre the GFC, uh, and then um, the company grew too quickly and essentially went broke. And we had a position at Wilson Asset Management ABC Learning Centres going back to 2005, 2006, and working with Matthew Kim at the time, you know, Matthew would ask Eddie Groves, the CEO, the same, same question every time, and what's the occupancy level of your centres? And the reason why I did that was because the CEO, Eddie Groves, had told him previously is that, Matthew, that's the one question you've got to ask me every time you meet. It's a key, key indication of how the business is going. So every time we'd meet with Eddie, we'd ask him the same question. And then two years down the track, we'd ask Eddie, so Eddie, what's your occupancy levels running at? And he goes, no, no, you don't have to worry about that anymore. It's not relevant. We're a much bigger business these days. We're expanding. We're over in the US. We've got a much bigger presence in Australia. We're looking at the UK as well. It's, it's, and to us, that was a red flag. Um, that the story had shifted, the story had changed, the strategy had changed. McPherson's was another one last year where we experienced that, where the strategy changed dramatically. Um, and since the share price is halved, we've seen a CEO depart. So that just gives you a bit of insight when we meet with these companies. There's only so many questions you can ask and you've got to be really careful what you ask and make sure it's all public information, um, is that uh, it's really critical. And it, it, it's shown over time for us is that those asking those same questions, making sure the company's staying to their stated strategy uh, and plan to grow is really important. Um, and so that's uh, it's a really important part of our process, particularly in the last 10 years. What we've noticed is the quantity of sell-side broker research in our, in our market, the smaller micro-cap in the market, has declined dramatically. Um, in fact, I'd guess that it's hard in terms of the quantity of reports that we see. So it's more important as ever for us and people like us to get out there and meet with the companies, as they say, wear out the shoe leather uh, and meet these companies face-to-face and, and build a relationship and try and understand more about the business and learn more about the business every time we meet. Yeah, that's interesting. That certainly was a feature of Wilson Asset Management. Are you adopting the same style as, as you use there or, or what have you learned that's, that um, you've taken with you and what have you learned that you've left behind in, in so starting different, your own company? So it's slightly different. So a few, few things. Firstly, um, the 851 Capital Emerging Companies Fund um, is a long-only product, so we don't short sell. Now, we could short sell at Wilson Asset Management. It was never a big part of what we did. In fact, the, the 10 years I was running the portfolios there was maximum 5% exposure on the short side at any one particular point in time. And what we found is we're no good at short selling. Um, we ran the numbers over five years. In fact, we broke even on our shorts. So um, let's take that off the table and not invest in, in any – well, let's not short sell any companies. Um, secondly, we don't invest in unlisted companies, um, which WAM do in a very small way. Um, again, coming back to that discussion around liquidity, that's really important to us. So um, it's important that we stay, stick to um, ASX listed securities and don't invest in the pre-IPO market, which we think is quite hot at the moment. Um, it's certainly uh, rife for a correction that pre-IPO market, we think, over the next year or so. Um, as, and the, the final piece would be our cash. So uh, we don't hold as much cash as the, Wilson, the team at Wilson Asset Management do. In fact, when I was there over 10 years, Wham Capital had an average cash, cash position of 34% mm-hmm. over 10 years. Our philosophy is that um, at 1851 Capital is that um, people invest money in the fund to get exposure to the market. If they want to be in cash, they'll generally make that asset allocation decision themselves and, and, and put it elsewhere. Um, so our average cash position at 1851 Capital has been around that 5% mark over the last nine months in particular, which is more broadly uh, we see as fully invested. It's always good to have a little bit of cash up your sleeve 
for a rainy day if we have a correction in the market, capital raisings pop up. So there's, op- there's always opportunities that pop up, so it's good to have a bit of cash there to, to take advantage of those when those opportunities arise. Yeah, look, it's always been something that I've questioned Wilson Asset Management on is if you're holding so much cash, but you're still achieving 17-odd percent per annum, you know, you could be doing 18, 19, 20% if you're fully invested, which provides you the buffer you're, you're looking for when the bad time comes. That, that's very true. But also um, also what we found is that holding a high level of cash protection on the downside as well. So, there, you know, through the GFC, um, you know, we found that holding high level of cash certainly helped preserve capital. Um, so it's a really important risk mitigation tool is being able to have flexibility around that cash weighting. Um, but certainly we feel as though... The, the mandate we've got at 1851 Capital, we say we average no more than 20% cash over time, gives us the flexibility to go above 20%, but I, I don't expect that we will at many occasions in, in the future, um, given our philosophy. And, um, you know, we, um, you know we, we believe that we want to be more fully invested, but not over time. Um, and so certainly, you know, Martin and I are collectively the biggest investors in the fund, so we've got good skin in the game, so to speak. Um, so we want to be more fully invested and have our money working as hard as possible. Yeah, no, I understand that. Are you, um, you take, talking about cash, and I, it was one of the intriguing things watching Jeff Wilson go to cash and go from cash because it was a good indicator of where the market is. Are you market agnostic in terms of your process or do you, do you have a view on where the market is and where it's going? No, we're, we're a bit agnostic, so we've got flexibility to move around. But in terms of our current view on the market, we've, we've been saying over the last six months we're the most bullish we've been since the GFC. Um, you know, we think the, the backdrop at the moment of easy fiscal and monetary policy is not going away anytime soon. The RBA have told us here in Australia that interest rates remain on hold till at least 20, the year 2024. Um, so we think that certainly provides a good runway for equities. You know, typically find equities do outperform in lower interest rate environments, and that's proven to be the case so far. Um, this cycle, which we think commenced in March of last year, um, we've also got that attitude of central banks and governments around the world doing whatever it takes to stimulate their various economies. That continues. We've seen it more recently again domestically uh, with Josh Frydenberg, the Treasurer, announcing a $1.2 billion stimulus package for the travel industry. Um, so we think that um, coming out of this COVID awful COVID pandemic, um, that we will continue to see really strong returns. In fact, based on the discussions we're having with companies and what we're observing is that the economy looks in the best shape it's been in well over 10 years. And in fact, what we think we'll see over the next 12 months is some of the best economic data or prints that we've seen for many, many years, if not decades. And we've started to see it already. The unemployment rate back at six. 5.6% already. Um, consumer confidence is at a 10 year high. Um, the banks are lending again. House prices are motoring high very, very quickly. So it's hard not to be bearish. Now, we know the market can't keep going up in a straight line and inevitably it will correct and come back. But we think that the direction over the next two, three years certainly remains, it goes high from here. And then the, the, the bullish, the, the backdrop for the market looks as bullish as we've ever seen. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, um, I don't want to make a, a too big a deal of this, but w- when the right level of welfare payment is made during a crisis and uh, interest rates are set properly, the economy booms. It kind of um, answers a political debate that's been going on for a long time about uh, welfare and about uh, supporting people back to work and things like that, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's been interesting. Um, people are fearful about the fiscal cliff. So what happens with our economy when all the stimulus finishes, um, particularly JobKeeper, which has finished only a few weeks ago? But what we've seen is that back in October of last year, we had our fiscal cliff at that point where the amount of stimulus in the system shrunk by 80%. That was primarily driven by 
the JobKeeper payments falling from September to October, the amount that was paid went from 1500 to 4900 down to 1200 the amount of people who participated in that program dropped a lot. So what we saw is that period is that the stimulus came down, but the economic data continued to accelerate to the upside. So we think that uh, we don't have any fears around JobKeeper finishing only a few weeks ago. We think that the, uh, the backdrop remains strong for the economy, um, but we certainly think that... Um, you know, this bull market, which commenced in the March of last year, you know, it, it feels a lot like now we're in 2010, parents are coming out of GFC, where a lot of the easy money is being made coming out through that uh, late to mid to late 2009 period. And now we're hopefully we're in a return to more normal conditions where, um, you know, the share market could rise anywhere from 5 to 10% per annum like it's done for the last 50 or so years. Yeah, no, I agree. If people want to invest with you, how do they go about doing it? So the best way is to jump on our website, 1851capital.com.au. The application forms are on the homepage. Um, and please fill out those forms. Contact uh, the office if you have any issues completing those forms. But you can send those off to our administrator mainstream who do the administration. We outsource our administration to them. Um, but certainly uh, with the fund sitting at $250 million today, um, we expect that we'll be uh, soft-closing the fund over the next few months uh, to new investors. So please say we are in a strong position in that regard. All right. Well, I'll leave it at that, Cam, unless you have other questions. But good luck. That's, uh, it's great to hear you off by yourself. And um, it's been uh, fun and interesting watching your career. So um, I'm sure you'll do well. Thanks, Cameron, Tony. Appreciate your time today. All righty. Thanks, Chris. Well, there you go. Chris Stott, 1851 Capital. Check them out. Uh, appreciate Chris coming on and having a chat. Let's get into news of the week and Q&A. Well, that's the end of the free episode for this week. For the brand new folks, I want you to know that each week we have a free episode and a premium episode. Free episode runs about half an hour. Premium episode usually runs for an extra half hour to an hour, depending on how many questions we have from our audience that week, because we spend a lot of that time answering questions. Uh, If you want to check out the premium episodes, you can go up to our website, qavpodcast.com.au, and sign up for the two-week free trial. You get to have a look at the premium episodes. You get to have a look at the checklist, the getting started guide, all of the video content that we have. Uh, You get invited to our VIP dinners and our VIP Zoom calls for club members. You get to ask Tony questions that we can answer. You get to get invited to our uh, Facebook group, our private Facebook group, etc., etc. And also we get a, a... private uh, club member newsletter each week we send out as well with some stuff in it so check that out qavpodcast.com.au but as i said if you're brand new and you want to you're trying to figure out what's going on go back and listen to season three episodes one three and five 301 303 and 305 and then you might also want to go back and listen to season one as well all of the free episodes in season one where we go into a lot of detail about tony's system and methodology and figure out if this is right for you, if it's something that you want to go further with, if you want to learn how to invest like Tony does, then you can check out the uh, QAV Club. Uh, the other thing I always have to say is we're not financial advisors, so don't take anything you hear on this as financial advice. This is just here to teach how one guy invests and thinks about investing. If you need financial advice or tax advice, please go see a financial advisor or a tax advisor. Uh, With that, stay safe, good luck with your investing, and we'll be back next week.